Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I'm the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. And um, yeah, I got a great one for you. Uh, Robert Breedlove is back and uh, we are going to talk about you know, mainly his his latest piece of writing, uh, Masters and Slaves of Money. And um, we are, you know, we, we get into all kind of different rabbit holes. Um, I hope you uh, I hope you enjoy it. Robert is always a joy to speak to. He is um, one of the best writers in the space. We've got so many, but he's definitely up there and people just waiting for his next one to drop, uh, which he gives us a little teaser into. Um, brilliant mind, um, yeah, really uh, fascinating young man, and you know, he, he, great to have him on our side, right? Um, you know, one of us, uh, brilliant, um, brilliant that uh, he's you know so open to coming on the show as well and, and discussing this and uh, having a chat with Samuel at the beginning um, about um, you know uh, his investment. It was Robert that uh, definitely inspired Samuel to part with some of his birthday money back in uh, April, I think it was. So <laughs> hope you enjoy the show. Um, big thanks to everyone that, uh, t- that contributes. Uh, that's Adam, who produces the show. Obi at CoinFloor, who um, support the show. That's coinfloor.co.uk forward slash bitten if you want to go start stacking some sats. And Sir Badders for you know providing this music that uh, is uh, running just uh, behind my voice right now. That's uh, at Hodler then now. Let's get into this one, guys. Take care, and um, thanks, as always, for listening, and uh, I'll catch you after the show. Hey, guys, welcome to this week's Once Bitten podcast, and joining me today is Robert Breedlove. Robert, thanks again for coming back on the show. It's um, it's really great to see you again, man. Hey, Dan, likewise. Good to see you, too. And Samuel is with us here because um, you, you just met Lauren pre-record, um, so she's going to she's she's going off to play with her dolls. But Samuel wanted to um, come back and uh, and have a chat with you. And um, well, what was your what was your question, mate? Ah, oh, damn it, my earphones. <laughs> <laughs> so my question was, um, why did you buy why did you buy Bitcoin? Question is, why did I buy Bitcoin? Um, I originally bought Bitcoin as more of a speculative investment. And then, as I like to say, where my money went, my mind followed. And the more closely I studied the history of money, uh, I soon identified Bitcoin to be the greatest monetary technology there's ever been. So, in the world, money tends towards one solution because we all need to trade, right? We're all people. So we really just need one type of money. And Bitcoin basically perfects all the properties that make money money. So um, what became a, a speculation became uh, a very precious investment, became a career. So that's kind of the, the story in a nutshell. And inspired Rob to write so many great pieces, which we're going to talk about um, a little bit further into the show. 
But if I can cast your memory back, Rob, to when you first met Samuel on this show, one of his questions, I think his question that day was, should I invest my birthday money into Bitcoin? That's right. I remember that. How's that investment doing? <laughs> so we just checked it. We just checked it before we come on to speak with you. Um, I don't know if you remember the, the voice message we sent you after that, uh, that first episode we did. Uh, Samuel decided to invest 40 euros of his 120 into Bitcoin, mm. which I matched. Um, so I matched the investment. So his 80 euros. Uh, that was back on the 4th of April. And that 80 euros now stands at, um, where has it gone? Right here. 116 euros and 57 cents. Looky there. That's a great, that was in April too. Wow. It's a mm. massive ROI. You outperformed everything. Congratulations. Thank <laughs> that, you. And what have you done since then, mate? Right, mm-hmm. you've you've not tracked the market, you've not traded in and out of anything, you've not even worked. <laughs> that, that's the dream. You just let it keep working for you. Yeah, I was hoping to see the reaction on your face. <laughs> Is it a good one? <laughs> yes. Yeah. I'm impressed. You see, we, you're start, we, you're starting you know, a we, good career of investing. Look at that! You've already beaten most professionals since April. At the age of nine. And all you did was buy and hodl. I mean, that, yeah, Bitcoin works for us. We don't work, with, we don't work for Bitcoin, right? Mm-hmm. How many sats <laughs> is that? Do you guys know? Um, yeah, it was 12,703 that uh, he purchased. 12,000 sats. It's a good start. No, would one that of those be sats? Right? no of course, that wouldn't be right. That was, no, like 80 euros amount. would be... Mm, no. Probably at one hundred twenty-seven thousand. Uh, ah. God damn! I've got to get better at these decimal point divisions. And, yeah, uh, how much, it's, it's tricky. I don't like divisions. Yeah. Um, well, Sam, I think those sats, each one of those sats, will probably be worth a dollar in your lifetime. So, congratulations! Just hold on tight. Thank you. Hold yep. on tight and keep adding to them. When when that birthday money rolls in, just take a little bit extra. Yep, and maybe Christmas money. Exactly. Every time, yeah. every chance you get, just add to that stack. Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you have any other questions for Robert? Um, why did he start a Bitcoin book? Um, I I tell people that the the trip down the proverbial Bitcoin rabbit hole is you're actually chasing the rabbit. That is the question, what is money? And I think if you keep asking yourself that question, you just, you stumble into this thought domain that's bottomless, it seems like. It makes you question everything. Um, And, you know, I would encourage you to do the same. Just keep, you know, studying where your money is, studying what your money is, studying that investment. And I think that curiosity just keeps paying dividends. And, um for me, it's, yeah, it's just, I've always been a curious person and read a lot. And Bitcoin has just been this inexhaustible teacher in a lot of ways. So I'm going to try to write about everything I've learned and hopefully help people see the world through my eyes a little bit. And when you get a little bit older and um, you start reading Robert's work and understanding it a little bit more, you'll always be able to think back to these these interviews that we did with him and that, I know that guy. <laughs> He's the guy that told me to invest my birthday money. You're going to have this like real tangible point 
to that book on the bookshelf. We'll even get it signed one day. Yeah. Happy to when sign. he's finished it. <laughs> okay, mate. Well, thanks for your question, Samuel. Do you want to say get uh, goodbye to Robert and uh, Bye. It's good to see you, Samuel. We'll see you at uh, the next one of these and get your investment update again. <laughs> yeah. Bye. Bye now. Thanks, mate. Um, I also, uh, I remember um, I, when I was looking for that update, I was looking for the, um, in the Telegram chat, I was looking for the date that we um, sent you that, that voice update so I could get the, the exact price. And I come across another message where I think I asked you something along the lines of, you know, when's, when's your next article coming out? And mm-hmm. your response, <laughs> this was 16th of June, and your response was something along the lines of, um, yeah, I'm working on it right now. I've got some things on my mind. Um, it'll be pretty short. I promise. No more than a 10-minute read. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, uh, that aspiration is ongoing. I really <laughs> fell on this one. This one was, came in at 36 minutes. Um, but I am working on, I have a draft done for the next piece that so far is in that 10-minute um, frame. So let's let's hope that I can get it through. <laughs> um, <laughs> Something tells me a, uh, it probably won't. I'm going to do my best. Someone showed me a chart once that for medium reading pieces, the readership drops off tremendously past 10 minutes. Like people, the attention span of, of modern blogosphere is, is definitely sub 10 minutes. So I'm going to try and hit that if nothing else as an experiment to see how it goes. But I like writing long form. I just, I've got a lot to say. What can I say? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And it's brilliant, mate, honestly. Um, You know, don't ever like, you know, kind of pare it back just, just because of like the blogosphere and metrics, because, you know, there's many of us out here that are just lapping it up. We can't get enough. And, and this last one, um, masters of slave and money, uh, my goodness, like, what, where did that, where did that all start coming from? <laughs> um, you know, strangely enough, I saw it, there's a a visual in the beginning of the piece that shows a map of the transatlantic slave trade, and then right below that, it shows one of these slave ships packed with slaves. It was actually a diagram for how um, slaves were packed into the hulls of ships to send from Africa to America and Europe. And I was at an art exhibit. I was in Art Basel, Miami, and I saw a giant art exhibit about that particular diagram. And it was just kind of a, uh, a click for me because I knew I had read about the agri beads being packed into the hulls of ships. And I was like, Oh my God, what a, what a barbaric irony that they would ship in holes, ships with holes packed full of counterfeit beads to acquire wealth. And then that basically became instrumental in the slave trade that they would then in turn pack human bodies into the, into the hulls of ships. So that connection really got me kind of thinking and writing about it. Um, Basically started my notes folder and started generating. I had some other stuff of this written. So it was kind of a combination of a couple of pieces, Uh, but that was the real, the real impetus for me. And then with, you know, everything that happened in March and all the George Floyd protests worldwide, 
um, seeing what I think is kind of like the, the anachronistic structures and institutions that we live inside, they're starting to crumble, starting to, to shake at the edges a little bit. Um, and all of these things seem to be interconnected, right? As, as many of us know in Bitcoin that the social cohesion of people or um, the effectiveness of a society, the ability of a society to operate and people to interoperate effectively and peacefully is critically dependent on the hardness and soundness of the money, right? And if you think about it just very simply, like from a biological perspective, we know that we can't really have more than 150 people in our head and our heart on a first name basis. It's like that Dunbar number um, that we're sort of evolutionarily predisposed to, right? All Every other person on earth, so outside of our sphere of say 150 people, the other seven plus billion, we need money to interoperate with. But if the, so it's basically a trust fabric or a trust network. And if you violate the trust in that network, then all of a sudden society starts to come unraveled, right? We saw this before the collapse of Rome. We've seen it before the collapse of many great societies. Uh, you know, safety and outlines a lot of these in his book, but it's happening now, I think. Right. We, we see governments imposing their draconian measures and quantitative easing to infinity, trying to, you know, rectify or save the economy. Um, and it's just sowing more seeds for harm down the road. So uh, long winded answer to the question, but it it definitely felt I couldn't stop thinking about it, right? When all this stuff was going on, was the protests were peaking. I'm like, okay, I have to write this. This is the piece I have to write. Um, so, yeah. And since you've written it and since I've read it and since I've listened to it a couple of times, big shield for Guy Swan, amazing work again. Um, I can't stop thinking about it. Like, you know, uh, this theft of time and, you know, the, the meme, fix the money, fix the world. This is what we're talking about, right? Like the fabric of society has been completely and utterly manipulated to the point of, you know, complete, well, it's like, it's broken. Like this is why we are in situations that we're in around the world where people are just, you know, you know, violent rioting in the streets. Yeah, yeah, I think what we are led to believe is a lot of racial tension is really just the symptom of broken money, right? We we all live under this system whether we understand it or not that we are being perpetually stolen from via inflation, right? And that's just looking at inflation, not counting all the explicit taxes we pay, uh, which itself is a form of theft. Because any transaction between two participants that's not consensual, that we haven't sat down at the negotiating table and agreed, this is what I will give, this is what I would like to get, and we've both signed on the dotted line, that's the only time a trade can be consensual and an act, you know, as Rothbard says, to be moral, an act must be free. So all of these unfree um, confiscations of wealth where there's a non-consenting party 
namely us, uh, these things are destructive to society. So it drives a, a, a polarity between people. So I think we already naturally have uh, the world divided kind of, people say left and right. A lot of that's driven by temperament, right? Um, it's kind of the creatives versus the more, um, and there's there's a big five personality trait description for this. I want to say it's conscientiousness, so like the hardworking conservative types, and then uh, I forget the name of the, the liberal one, but it's the creative types, right? So we have the the entrepreneurs and creators and artists on one side, um, and the the hardworking, conscientious people on the other, and th- so there's a natural polarity in people. But when you introduce fiat currency, I think it just debases the trust even more. So it causes these groups to become more and more polarized. And there's a great chart on uh, WTF happened 1971.com where it actually shows how politicians were voting here in the U.S. on the red versus red versus blue side. And you see their votes just become increasingly polarized uh, since 1971. So there is something very intimately connected to who we are, like the character of individuals that's connected to the nature of the money that we use. Um, And in a very simple way to think about that is, you know, whereas Bitcoin is based on proof of work, right? It can only be obtained with real sacrifice, right? Um, It could, that, you know, you must earn it through work or you must acquire it through mining. There must be an expenditure of energy or you can purchase it on the market with something you've earned. Um, Fiat currency would be the exact opposite. It's based on proof of theft. I mean, maybe not for the everyday man, right? The everyday guy goes to work for that paycheck, but that money that he's sacrificing so much to earn is actually being siphoned. It has, it has, there's a lot of ways to think about it. Maybe like a technology backdoor that's some siphoning the wealth out of it gradually. Um, and if you just look at the, the Fed's own data, look at the growth in USM2, that's your proof of theft chart. Whereas Bitcoin has its hash rate, right? How much energy is being sacrificed to produce it and secure it, showing its proof of work. Uh, the USM2 curve shows how much money is being produced at an effortless keystroke by the Fed, which is, again, a private institution. It's drawing a 6% annual dividend for its undisclosed shareholders just for the right that it violently and deceptively preserves to monopolize money. Um, it's bad. It's really bad. This system will be regarded <laughs> by history as one of the greatest cons of all time. In my opinion, can I just pick up? You just said undisclosed shareholders, and I don't think many people um, have really kind of grasped exactly what that means. Um, would you just um, like explain what's going on there at the Fed? Sure. So, Federal Reserve is born. I, I would point people to the book "The Creature from Jekyll Island" um, for a real thorough history on the inception of the Fed. There's an abridged version of this book called Dishonest Money by a guy named, uh, author last name Plummer, I believe. Um, and I read this book before Bitcoin, and this is what really got me turned on to the, the evils of, of central banking and the Fed. But the essentially, 
There were three attempts to implement a central bank in the United States, um, which failed. And Andrew Jackson, uh, U.S. former U.S. president, was a big proponent in keeping the banks out. He's he has a lot of great quotes about the evils of central banking. I think there's a. I don't know if this story is, is accurate or not, but I think there's one where he punched a central banker in the face, actually, uh, at a meeting, which I thought was interesting. But the the concept of central banking to have a monopoly on the market for money, is it's unconstitutional. It contradicts the principles on which America was founded. It's actually the fifth measure in uh, Karl Marx's 1848 manifesto of the Communist Party. So central banking is straight out of Marxism's playbook, uh, which I mentioned here. And it was incepted. The final, the third attempt in the Fed was successful in 1913. And it was basically done, uh, I think it was on Christmas Day or, or very close to Christmas Day when no one was paying attention in the media. They, uh, some of the most powerful people in the world went down on this little retreat to this island called Jekyll Island, just south of Georgia. Uh, and they basically laid out a plan to monopolize the monetary system to benefit themselves. And on the other side of that is uh, a group, you know, the owners of that system are basically a group of the wealthiest families in the world. Um, there's not actually, because it is a private corporate institution. This is not owned. There's this mystique that people think somehow the Federal Reserve is uh, a public good or public service or owned by the public, but it's just not true. I mean, it's just owned by a private banking cartel that then um, owns government essentially through that monopoly as well. And then they force that monetary network on society. Like you cannot compete with U.S. dollar. There is no there is no free market competition in the sphere of fiat currency. And uh, yeah, they're kind of the silent, shadowy slave masters because they have this ability, as I, I quantify later in the piece, to essentially print human time or steal human time via this this mechanism of of uh, fiat currency. Um. So it, there's no moral justification for it whatsoever. Uh, I think they've only been able to get away with it because, again, it's such a – it's a difficult-to-understand area. Um, relatively – like I think money is actually kind of simple to understand once you've gotten over a large hump – of studying uh, economics and whatnot. But I think they took advantage of that, right? So they basically eliminated all Austrian uh, education from curriculum. There's no exploration of the first principles of money, uh, no discussion of it whatsoever. If, you, if you've grown up in Western civilization and gone to a state curriculum, you'll know that government is essentially equated with God uh, in Econ 101. It's, it's the entity that's at the top of the chart. It suffers no trade-off. It can print money. It can it can pull these different levers to control employment, and that's it. So it doesn't even explore the actual stakeholder interest in that organization. It doesn't even look at it as if it's human. When in fact, we all know that government is clearly full of humans who are, you know, deceitful, malevolent creatures at times. And uh, 
it's it's more easily understood as an institution of serfdom or something to that effect because you they've there's no equitable benefit a central bank can provide to an economy there's nothing they can do good for an economy literally not one thing and people think oh covid happened they printed money and sent checks to everyone that's a good thing it's not a good thing the reason no one has any savings is because money doesn't hold its value across time if we're on a gold standard everyone would have savings as an insurance policy against the uncertainty of the future to protect themselves against events like COVID striking. So the, you know, I think the analogy is apt where it's the central bankers are the arsonists proclaiming themselves to be firefighters. They are the reason we are so fragile. The economy is so fragilized by the, the imposition of this debt-based currency. And then when the inevitable uh, shock comes, right, because the future is uncertain and shit happens, uh, that frat, that fragility shows itself. And then they step in um, by, by, uh, by washing the markets with artificial liquidity to, quote, unquote, save it. But what they are, in fact, doing is just confiscating value from others, reallocating it to the targeted few, which are usually larger corporations, politically favored few, big banks. Uh, at the expense of those that receive money last. Um, and it's just, it's really bad. It's not uh, not morally justifiable in any way, any conceivable way whatsoever. So I hope in this piece that I thoroughly destroyed the concept of inflation because I am really tired of having arguments with people I consider to be smart that can look me square in the face and tell me inflation is necessary for a good economy. It makes no sense. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, there was a thread the other day. People were still getting caught up on it with that um, Stoffley guy. It's just like, oh my god. Oh yeah. You know. Anyway, we won't talk about him. Um, and you know, so the Fed thing. Um, it went around on Twitter again yesterday. Bitcoin sign guy. I can't remember. I think I can't remember who like started sending it around again. And, uh, you know, it's really, really apt after reading your piece and then seeing that again and then seeing Yellen, the, the minute he puts that up is like, well, the second he does, um, that's when she's defending um, the Fed's, like, transparency, right? You know, we are the most transparent, one of the most transparent, like, uh, central banks in the um, in the world. And um, I, I can't remember who was questioning what, what senator, but, you know, he was basically calling, Ken, you know, we need to audit the Fed, we need to audit the Fed, mm-hmm. and just, you know, batting back. And that's when he holds that sign up, like just bam, buy Bitcoin. And he's just like, mm-hmm. wow, that is just amazing to, you know, at yeah. that point of that conversation is just so apt, especially after reading your piece and, uh, and listening to guys reading of it. Um, that just really rounded out everything for me really, really nicely. And it's like, <laughs> damn, who are the, the shareholders, right? And, you know, I'm like, who? Right. Who the hell? And we're never going to know. We, they, they, right. they can never tell us, ever. That's right, yeah. And or it, heads are going to roll, man. Like, heads are going to roll. Yeah. And shareholders in a monopoly, you know, like, it's – they uh, like, to take a 6% annual dividend – and any typical free market would mean that your company is creating value in the world, right? There are actually profits being generated, and then a portion of those profits are being redistributed to shareholders in the form of a dividend. 
But in this case, they're actually siphoning value off of society. It's like a parrot. It is very much like a parasite. Uh, it's an economic parasite and confiscating value from society, adding nothing to it whatsoever. Actually, they are impeding to the wealth generation of free markets because from a central bank, a lot of regulations are, are promulgated and reg regulations are impediments to free trade. Free trade are the source of wealth generation. So they're actually restricting our collective potential. Uh, they're, they're actually restricting collective productivity and, and capital formation and drawing a dividend on that restriction. So it's a, it's a double kind of whammy, you know, like, um, the, I think one of the, of the ways I put it in the piece is from a very simple supply and demand standpoint, um, central banks and governments are colluding to compel demand for fiat currency, right? Because they require it to be used for tax collections. They require it to, for use in legal tender. They require, uh, in the US, we require the US dollar and the denomination of oil contracts. Um, you know, we have this reserve currency status. So they're compelling the demand to give this uh, money substitute that we call fiat currency a market value while they simultaneously and perpetually violate its supply, right? So they're just sucking off, they're just producing the supply for themselves. Um, and that's the, that at a real basic economic level is the game that's being played. You're forcing demand on people while you gradually produce new supply for yourself to suck that value off of everyone else's work. And um, I hesitated when I, I understood this years ago, but I always hesitated to call it slavery. But I could not formulate a better term for the theft of time. I don't know what else you call that, even though it's not as visual uh, and, and, you know, gun in your face, chains on your neck and wrist kind of slavery. It's not this uh, super visceral, terrible physical bondage, but it, it's this invisible form of, a, in a way, much more insidious because it's such larger scale, right? Um, form of bondage. You know, people are sacrificing their lives towards this uncollateralized debt instrument undergoing slow motion default while it's forced on society. Like people are sacrificing themselves for dollars for fiat. And uh, it's not right. It's not right. It's not, man. And, you know, I, I put a tweet out there um, a little while ago, like they pay you with their money for your time and then change and manipulate the way that that money functions in society. That's right. Um, it reminds me of this thing they used to say in Soviet Russia that they pretend to pay us and we pretend to work. That came to be a saying in, in late stage Soviet Russia because right. centrally planned markets don't work, right? They didn't work in the whole economy in Russia. They're not going to work in the market for money in the world. So this really is like American capitalism once again winning against socialism or communism. We just don't understand that. People don't understand that money isn't free right now. So that's where, like, 
let's let's settle on that, like the capitalism versus socialism thing, because that is a huge takeaway that Guy took from your piece, and I really liked his his summation of that. Um, and I've been guilty, as many as many many others have have probably been guilty of believing that you know we live in a you know in a capital free market and we can go out and make our money and whatever else. When that gets turned upside on its head and like you're, you're showing the truth, you're like, whoa, what? So could you just explain a little bit more about what you just said? Yeah. Um, so in the piece, I, I try to always bring things back to a real simple kind of first principle foundation and, and build from that. Um, so the example I use to explain capitalism versus socialism I say that the first man that went and dug himself a hole to protect himself from the elements was the world's first capitalist, right? He, he went into the world, he identified a, a need, which was his own protection from the elements. He applied his labor and work, possibly the use of tools, rocks, whatever, to dig this hole. Uh, and then he used this hole, uh, this capital that he, that he formed um, to protect himself from the elements, to actually uh, satisfy a want, right? He had a want to not get rained or snowed or sleeted on, and he did this thing to satisfy his own want. So in that instance, this individual is sowing the seeds of, of work, of honesty, of delayed gratification, right? He has to work today to benefit tomorrow. Um, and then he is reaping the fruits of his own labor. He owns the fruits of his own labor. So now we would say that he has a right in that property. Uh, he actually transformed it um, for his own benefit. And then the next guy that comes along and, you know, decides to bash this guy in the head with a rock and throw him in the bushes and then take over his little hole in the ground. That guy was the first socialist because he effectively is making, you know, violently, and coercively taking someone else's fruits, the fruits of someone else's labor for his own benefit. So that's the dichotomy I like to draw is that capitalism just means that you have the exclusive rights to the fruits of your own labor, such that anything you've spent your time, energy, effort, investing into to create value, you should have the exclusive right to that property and the right to trade it with others, other self-owned people that have created things of value doing the same thing, right? So and this is all kind of rooted in natural law that where we have the right, the natural right, not a government given right to life, to liberty and to property. And that's what property is, right? This relationship between man and nature that if we've transformed it, we've added value to it, we own it, we can trade it. And then on the other end of that spectrum is socialism that means to a greater or lesser extent, other people, namely the state, have rights in the fruits of your labor. So if you spent, you know, whatever, 100 hours creating this hole in the ground, maybe they own 20% of it or 30% of it, and they can redistribute it as they see fit. Um, and that's it. You know, I would say... The, the terminology is is tricky because especially with socialism, uh, a lot of kind of new age young millennials or, or younger generations, it's a, it's a bit in vogue again. People are 
you know, fetishing Karl Marx and, and whatnot. And I really think, as silly as it sounds, I think this has to do with the word. Like socialism has the word social in it. Social's great. Who thinks social's known? Social everything's good, right? I mean, I guess you could argue, argue social media might be have a little bit of a bad rap from time to time. <laughs> yeah. But the idea of socializing, right? It's all it's good. That's something healthy and communal and and all these things. But socialism is this fantasy or hallucination that we can somehow collectively own capital and the administrators of that collective ownership won't screw everyone over. I mean, they inevitably do, right? You pay taxes to the centralized body. It's meant to be redistributed perfectly, you know, without market signals to be uh, this utopian fix or whatever for, for wealth inequality, but it never, <laughs> never works out like that. Whoever gets a hold of the capital ends up giving it to their friends and family until the system collapses, right? So the best system we have for humanity is, is capitalism. Capitalism is a non-state statist doctrine. I almost want to say it's the difference between capitalism and all statism doctrines, because whether it's fascism, socialism, communism, these all require big action from the state. Whether it's too far left or too far right, it doesn't really matter. It ends up in the same situation. It ends up with this giant death machine called the state. And I'm not not exaggerating here. Like the state murdered 169 million people in the 20th century. That's one out, one out of every two people in the U.S., right, over 100 years, murdered by state-funded operations. Um, so capitalism is the only economic doctrine that advocates a minimized state. There should only be enough state as the free market bears. So what we would have in that situation is no monopoly on money. And we'd probably have a world that looks much more like uh, the sovereign individual thesis, right? Where there's a lot of government becomes a much more localized affair um, where they're just really providing protection services on a consensual transaction basis at a much more localized level. And we wouldn't have this mechanism, this widespread mechanism of theft that feeds the centralized, top-heavy, federalized government. Um, so that's – and the confusion there I think is probably related to, again, central banking. They very much commandeered the intellectual sphere uh, or have tried to do so for – you know, the past 100 some odd years, I think that's what's breaking down actually in the digital age is you can't perpetrate these same illusions because I forget, maybe it was Hayek said the greatest threat to the state is individual intellectual criticism or something to that effect. It's like now everyone in the world has that ability because we can all be independent intellectual uh, inquisitors via the web, right? We Knowledge has just been totally unshackled. Um, and as the American pragmatist described truth as the end of inquiry, now that we all have so much more time and visibility to inquire more deeply about the nature of our reality and the systems that govern us, I think we're just going to zero in on truth much more quickly. Um, and I just don't see how an institution shrouded in lies, deception, 
and with a history, more history of violence than anything, any other institution in history. I don't see how that can persist in the digital age. Uh, maybe I'm, I'm a hopeful optimist, but uh, I think it's fairly practical as well to consider that, that this is the system will not hold up. And what's the quote? You have a Buddha quote in there, something along the lines of you, there are three things you can't hide, like the, the sun, the moon, and the truth, something That's like right. that. That's right. I've paraphrased yeah, yeah, yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. So That's so exactly what a couple yeah. of A couple of Buddha quotes, but I love that one, right? It's, yeah. Um, I, I'm a big fan of Jordan Peterson as well. And I, he says, he has this one quote that, that sticks with me a lot. He was a clinical psychologist for 20 plus years. And he said one thing that he learned, and this is him, he's, he was a very successful, so he was giving um, these psychological treatments to people in all walks of life, but a lot of very high impact people, right? Like super successful entrepreneurs uh, and people with just very severe psychological issues. So really across the spectrum. He's seen a lot of life, a lot of stories. He's helped people unravel a lot of a lot of personal psychological things. And he said the one thing he learned is that no one gets away with anything ever. So like every bad thing that happens in someone's life, he's like, if you peel back enough layers and trace it back far enough, there's some moral twisting. It doesn't have to be theirs necessarily. It doesn't mean that person did something wrong, but something somewhere, someone did something wrong that they may have got embroiled in. So I really, I've come to, in my studies, believe that the moral dimension of reality is as real as the spatio-temporal dimension of reality. Like, I really think it's, it's very real. Even if we haven't quantified it scientifically or, or articulated it necessarily, I think that's kind of what religion is. Religion is explaining this moral dimension of reality that science is blind to maybe today. Um, but it doesn't make it any less real than space and time, right? Like it's very real. And all of this, the craziness we're seeing in the world right now, like it has to be connected to the fact that the dominant institution in the world is completely based on lies and deception. Right. I think they've embroiled us in this, this moral turpitude that's just really bad for everyone. So I, I, I hold out a lot of hope that the digital age will be this renaissance type event that will incinerate these false institutions. Um, and, you know, Bitcoin plays a, a gigantic role in that, clearly. It does, mate. And that brings us back again to fix the money, fix the world. And I wanted to talk to you about that again and, and give people like a, a tangible analogy of to, um, you know, how it's affecting their everyday life. And they probably don't even know it. Um, yeah. And your analogy in um, in your writing about the the winemaker that um, uh, is basically incentivized to defraud his either his competition or his suppliers or his clients, um, and you know he, he is a a perfectly good human ethical high moral standards producing a perfectly good wonderful product that people are getting enjoyment from, but something changes, i.e. the money supply gets doubled out of nowhere, mm -hmm. the rules get changed, and 
that incentivizes further ba- further bad behavior. Um, do, right. do you want to talk about a little bit more about that? And then I have an analogy yeah. for people that might be thinking, oh, that would never happen to me. But um, yeah. I'd like to hear. <laughs> yeah, so this is uh, an example I got from Honest Money. It's a book by Gary North. It's available for free as a free PDF on mycease.org. It is a phenomenal book. Um, it explains money and economics from very basic first principles. His writing style is very much like C.S. Lewis. I don't know if you've read any of his work, but very short, easy to understand sentences um, (laughs) that explain very sophisticated content. And it's from a first, like he builds it from first principles. It's a great, great book. Um, It's a very short read too, maybe just over a hundred pages, a hundred short pages. You can read it in three or four hours. Uh, It's a great book. But he gives this example um, that I've modified slightly here, but there's a, the case of the hypothetical winemaker who typically sells his wine for $20 a bottle. He's got his profit margin baked into it, right? Um, he's got his loyal and reliable customer base that expect the wine to be of a certain quality. He has a reputation for providing a certain quality of wine. And if we assume that this winemaker is living under a centrally banked economy in which the local central banker overnight doubles the money supply, right? To quote unquote, save the economy. Uh, The winemaker is now faced with three choices in in the face of this, this inflation of fiat currency. He can continue selling his wine for $20 a bottle, but he will take a 50% haircut because he'll be being paid in dollars that have lost, that have been diluted 50%, right? So he could eat the loss. His second option would be to water down his wine or to use cheaper ingredients such that he could keep selling it for $20, but decrease his cost basis in the product so he could maintain his margin. So now in this, this choice, he would be selling his customers essentially an inferior product, right? Which they may not wise up to immediately, but over time, they would figure out, right? So he's kind of like trading against his, his own future reputation. He could probably defraud his customers for a little bit now, but he's tri- in the future, people are going to figure it out and they're going to take their business elsewhere. His last option is to double the selling price of his wine to $40 and keep using the same inputs to maintain his margin, his quality, et cetera. So that would be the honest thing to do. If the money supply is doubled, inflation's hit, and we're ignoring a lot of the the delayed effects of inflation or whatever for simplicity, but assuming they double the money supply, he would need to double the cost of his wine just to maintain his margin. And in this way, you know, like so if we think about it like this, a price increase or a price change is the most visible thing a customer can see in a product, right? They can't look at the bottle of wine and say, oh, this guy used cheaper grapes. Oh, I can tell his water is like, you can't see it and tell that. What you can tell is the price, right? So merchants, the last thing they ever want to do is increase price. Because if you increase price, you're incentivizing your customer to evaluate their alternatives, to look elsewhere, to look at the competition, to say, you know, should I still buy this guy's wine or should I go buy the other guy at uh, $20 a bottle? Um and in an inflationary economy, 
it, as we've explored here, to maintain your margin and quality of product, you have you are forced to increase your prices, right? So what many merchants do, this this puts merchants in a situation where they're forced to weigh their financial well-being with their moral integrity, because there's a big incentive to just use cheaper ingredients, right? And trade against your own reputation in the short run, um, knowing that that consumers can't necessarily detect it very easily um, to the point where is even if you are honest and you're the $40 guy, you're like, I'm going to, inflation's hit me 50%. I'm increasing the bottle of my wine to $40 to keep everything the same. You might still go out of business because your customers are incentivized to go elsewhere to other winemakers that might have less scruples. Right. And if you flip this whole thing on its head, and say, what if we were in a deflationary economy, right? And the money was actually appreciating year over year. Winemakers would then be incentivized. Again, the price change is the most visible thing you can do to a product. They would then be incentivized to decrease prices because each time you do that, economically at least, that's an inducement to your customer to buy more of your product, right? So then instead of this race to the bottom in terms of product quality, we'd have a race to the bottom in terms of consumer prices, right? Whereas quality staying, quality staying constant in a deflationary, an economy operating under a deflationary monetary standard like gold or Bitcoin, that's what would happen. So it's, it's in that way that inflation induces producers to deceive their customers in the short run and to dilute their own future reputation. So it's shrinking their time horizon, right? Increasing their time preference, as the Austrians would say. And it, it just, in, and it infests society, right? Because once one winemaker's done that to one customer, all of a sudden that customer's received inferior value for their money. And whether they consciously detect this or not, it actually influences their buy and sell decisions. Um, and it just radiates out from there. So this, when we have theft, when we have unrighteousness integral to our monetary system, it actually permeates our character and changes the way we behave. We've perverted our own incentives and in doing so, um, perverted our own souls in a way. And, you know, I, I think of the piece, I, I say that inflation's basically an, an infectious cancer on, on the moral fabric of society. Um, and I, I believe that to be true. And I would encourage everyone to go out and read Gary North's book. A lot of people have pushed back on this and said, oh, no, that's the same situation in a purely capitalist economy. And I'm like, I don't think you get it. You need to look at this again. Uh, and don't take my word for it. Go read the book. Um, so it's it's bad. I, I, I think... As Bitcoiners, one of the best things we can do in the space, because again, a lot of it comes down to the words. A lot of the disagreements come down to person A understands word A to be one thing. Person B understands word A to be a different thing. It's all about kind of aligning what these words actually mean. And the number one thing we can destroy in Bitcoin is inflation. Inflation is theft. That's it. It's not anything else. And it's sure as hell not necessary for a healthy economy. Uh, yet we have Jerome Powell on live TV saying, we're going to get past that 2% inflation and we're going to get this economy revved up again. And 
people like who I consider to be smart people believe that shit. And I'm blown away. I feel like I'm living in the Truman show in, in some ways um, <laughs> yes. that, that a guy can go on live TV and tell me that inflation is necessary for a healthy economy. It's, it is a total lie. So, you know, please tell your family and friends inflation. No bueno. Yeah. And for, for anybody listening and thinking, you know, well, but I want to just use an analogy, like, you know, again, how like, uh, the, the, is the, it, the, the fabric of society is completely broken and it, um, you know, it affects us emotionally and, um, in, it infects our integrity when we're making, um, economic decisions and whatever else for anyone listening. Um, there, there's probably thousands of you out there that have probably at some stage, um, for your work had some kind of, um, expense form to fill out which you probably finagled or boondoggled or you're like um, kind of wangling extra miles out of the petrol that, um, that you're allocated or, you know, you're, you're buying a cheaper train ticket out of time so you can uh, net the extra 10 to 15 bucks or whatever else. All of this, you wouldn't be doing that. That is like kind of unethical kind of behavior. If you're like trying to boondoggle your employer out of a few extra bucks, you would not be doing that if the money wasn't broken. Yeah. I don't, I don't know that it cures everything. Like some of this <laughs> short term stuff, like I hear what you're saying. And I think you're, I think it's true. There's always going to be like bad people trying to get ahead a little bit. Um, but it definitely, I, like I tweeted this the other day that Bitcoin in a libertarian nutshell is that, Money that's hard to steal makes violence a lot less relevant, right? So when – because the other thing we're forgetting – the the thing we're not seeing is that we don't even understand how much wealth generation is possible in a truly capitalistic system, a truly free market system. So not only would we not have these – this inflationary – incentive or inducement to short run deception of one another, but we'd also have tremendously more wealth creation in the world, which relieves the incentives to steal or defraud, right? To, to finagle your expense report or whatever. So I agree that in that world, which is far from where we are today, that wealth would be just more abundant and therefore your, your pressures to, to, to steal and deceive would be dramatically reduced. Um, But I don't know, like who knows, we've never seen a world like that, right? Like there's always gonna be people trying to angle for their own self-interest, what have you. But but again, it's, I think the, the big takeaway there is to just understand and respect how malleable we are, right? There's this old quote that human nature is like water. It takes the shape of its container. Like I really do believe we change in response, like our whole action pattern uh, and behavioral systems and considerations change based on the incentive structure we're placed within. Right. And there's been countless experiments run on this where um, what's the one where they're delivering the, the shock to the guy. And if they're sitting in the same room with the guy, the person won't shock them, but all of a sudden you put them in two different rooms and it'll shock the shit out of them. Like your incentives change with your environment and 
and um, and what other whatever um, things are governing your behavior or your perception, like that directly influences uh, your morality, right? And that's that's the point here. And that one of the great Austrian authors, I can't recall who said it, but he said the the monetary standard and the moral standard are inexorably linked such that basically it's again, the nature of our money influences the nature of our, of our being. Um, and that, so yeah, if we could just stamp out inflation, like really get people to understand that, Hey, inflation is totally theft. And by the way, have you thought about money? Like what is money? How does like, I just, that's how I try to encourage people, bait people down the rabbit holes. Like just keep asking that question. Like, you might think we're all crazy over here talking about fix the money, fix the world. I'm not going to impose my beliefs upon you, but I would encourage you to just ask this question to yourself. What is money? And just don't stop asking that question. And I promise you, if you commit to it and do the hours and research and dig on that question, you're going to be a different person in two months. I promise you. Uh, everyone's journey is different, takes different routes, but, um, yeah, I think that's the best way to, to get people to see the light, help people to see the light. You can't get people to do anything, right? <laughs> no, of course. Um, okay, another type of theft, time theft, which um, is you know, a striking part of your, um, your latest article and one of your others, right? Um, so you know, this is clearly something that you've done a lot of um, thought about. I had a, a question that I wanted to pose to you about this. Um, and we, we almost touched on it when you're talking about the Fed and all of the different regulations that, um, that come with, um, with their policies or the government policies. Do you see that as another uh, way to steal people's time? Um, because to give you an analogy, if an entrepreneur wanted to go out and, and start a business, they discovered a, a service or a product that they were... Um, there was a need for, and they wanted to go out and uh, and serve their communities. Um, but how many people get stopped at that regulation or administrative mm. or bureaucratic point, and they're just like, oh, you know what? I just can't be bothered with this. I see it all the time. I hear it all the time. I see yeah. it here in the in the country I live in. My God, you know yeah. the 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 hours you spend. A friend of mine, he's Swedish. He had to he had to drive. Six and a half hours to Paris, pay for a hotel room overnight, eat out in a restaurant overnight to go and have a 10-minute meeting the next day because you have to have a passport photo in a particular governmental machine so he could get his passport, sent to him in a couple of weeks, by the way, and then drive the six and a half hours back. That wow. is theft, right? That is um, theft, yeah. Um, it's, it is... The time that's being stolen through the monopolization of money, right? So you're producing money, which is not even money, by the way. These are just debts they're creating. Fiat currency is born by borrowing, right? The central bank lends it to the government at interest. Um, so when, even when we say printing money, the correct translation of that is counterfeiting currency. That theft of value is used to finance all of these regulations, right? All of these complicated, this labyrinth of complicated regulatory nightmare. 
um, that is especially pronounced in it's becoming more pronounced because the more value that is confiscated, the larger the top state grows, the more they try to impose their will via regulation, the more complicated the regulatory environment becomes. And to your point, those, again, those are impediments to free trade, right? Your guy might have a solution that can satisfy customer wants today, but he now has to jump all these hurdles, jump through all these hoops uh, that take time, effort, money. And that may just be, may make his entire venture a non-starter. He might just say, fuck it. I can't do all this. Um, so not only is to your point, regulation is another form of time theft. Should you try and jump through all these hoops, um, to get it done and satisfy this want and, and execute on this enterprise. But how much is it also just constricting innovation? How many guys out there have had the, you know, the next Amazon or whatever idea and just can't just haven't started. Right. Um, so it, the deeper you dig on it, like the less, the more bearish on government you will become in general. Like government is just intended to be a local monopoly on violence that preserves property rights. Right. So again, the, back to the first capitalist and socialist, there would have been a, a small local group that would have punished the guy, the socialist that came and beat up the capitalist and took his hole in the ground. There would be a local uh, monopoly on violence that would say, hey, that's not allowed in this territory. So now you're going to pay the price. You know, maybe he would be beaten or killed or whatever it was. Um, and it's that's that monopoly on violence is basically to provide nonviolent dispute resolution that we would call the rule of law, right? In, in the U.S. and, you know, English common law, I think is practiced in, in most uh, civilizations in the world today. And uh, to preserve property rights. So when, or if you look at our government today, it's not doing that at all, right? Property rights are perpetually violated through money printing. When you're printing money, you're confiscating the property rights of those who hold most of their money in fiat currency and reallocating it to those who hold most of their wealth in real assets like equities or real estate, things like this. Um, so it's, it's bad. Like the, uh, I mean, we should be arguing for a minimal regulation. Like anything beyond like the basic tenets of morality. It's like don't kill, don't don't steal, don't no violence. Basically, like th that's the core of what should be the legal framework. Anything beyond that, and I know I'm. <laughs> there's a ton of complexity here. I don't claim to have all the answers at all. But that's what it, that should be the theme of it. It should be focused on preserving that, honoring basically the moral structure that we get from, you know, in the U.S. We have this Judeo-Christian religious substructure where the fact that we have private property rights, the fact that we have innocent until proven guilty, the fact that we have habeas corpus, these are all rooted on the, the Christian idea, which is that the sovereignty of the individual is superordinate to that of the state that we actually have to honor the, the individual that's capable of creating the future, right? That, that we have this divine power, which I talk about in the piece called the logos, that we can actually convert 
chaos into order. And that's what we are. Uh, we have to honor that such that we, uh, because that's what preserves and recreates the state is that people can be creative, can enter into consensual transactions, can experiment in nature, can develop innovations uh, that all benefit one another. And if you restrict any of that, it just slides the other direction. Uh, society stops being this garden that encourages you to be entrepreneurial and, and harvesting the fruits of your own labor and becomes something based much more on theft and deception. And, um, I, you know, maybe we're near that now. Maybe we're near peak fiat mania. Um, I, I, I don't watch much media or, or anything myself, but occasionally when I see something on the news in a dentist office or whatever, like it's, things are pretty weird out there. Like these talking heads on TV, like I, do people believe these guys? Like they're just, they're avatars. They're not even genuine. Um, they're all pushing an agenda of some kind. So I don't, I feel like maybe this is a, a consequence of lowering your time preference to studying Bitcoin, but the more closely I've studied Bitcoin and history of money, the more I start to feel like I'm living in the past. Like I feel like we're going to look back on this. Like we look back on, um, you know, maybe like even life in the, the, the fifties or, or something when, when racism was more normal, right? The fact that we have um, people, like I think we'll look back on this, this system of, of monetary theft as something really, really bad. Like I can't believe humans used to be like that. You know, whereas today it's just the norm. No one's, we're just blind to it. So I, it's kind of hard to put it into words, I guess, but um, I guess the lower your time preference becomes, the more you feel like you're feeling in the, living in the past <laughs> yeah i know what you're getting at and i want to i want to throw something at you that um kind of like uh, i've been thinking about um just because of um past experience past and current experience and thinking about time theft um after reading you know your article um uh, you know how early that starts in life in our in our journey into um you know into being, into, uh, into, you know, becoming part of the planet and whatever else. And, you know, I, what, what do you, th what would you say to, you know, my, my belief is this could start as young as like three years old when, when some kids or even younger depends on, uh, on the situation at home, when some kids are either sent to daycare or, or into the, uh, the state education system, that is, you know, when you think of that from first principles, it's like, man, that, that blows your mind. It's like, you know, I, I've got three kids at the moment. They're at home. They're, they're schooling remotely online. And I've got one that has chosen to, um, to go and do uh, higher studies. She's older. She's in her mid-teens. And I just see, my God, like the time that is being stolen from her um, going to these classes and the dead periods in between and getting her to and from. And, you know, this mm. starts as young as three years old sometimes, especially mm. in the U.S., where you have got kids from as young as three years of age going into kindergartens to build their their transcripts or their CVs to get into university in, like, 15 mm. years' time. It's complete yeah. madness. Yeah. Yeah, I agree um, that the state and university education system are very closely related. Um, and another thing I got 
from Jordan Peterson. He, he said that at least here in the U.S., our entire educational system is based on the 19th century model from Prussia, where Prussia was actually implementing a educational system that satisfied a couple of things. One, they needed daycare for their factory workers because it's a, it a very industrial society. Two, they needed new factory workers, right? So they, they regimented children by the clock, by the bell, by period. They had lockers. Like the entire environment that they experienced wasn't designed to closely mirror the industrial environment for which they were being raised. Um, and then the other thing they needed were more and more soldiers, right? So there was, um, there was quite a, a physical training element to it as well that we kind of have some carryover for today. But yeah, I think the educational system hasn't kept speed, hasn't kept up, uh, kept pace with the evolution of humanity, right? Like we, jobs are no longer factory jobs. Um, a lot more of the economy is now a knowledge-based economy and it's being conducted remotely. Um, so it seems as if that, that educational model will not, is no, is now misfit to current reality. Uh, it doesn't produce the type of people that, that the digital age demands. Um, and yeah, so much time is lost in not just at the school level, but also in commuting, right. And, and water cooler talk. And, um, I know this is, it depends heavily on your industry, if you need to be kind of physically present in an office or not. Um, and it depends on your culture and a number of other things. But I think for a lot of operations, this whole COVID situation has forced them to figure out whether or not their operation is conducive to a remote workforce, right? To actually using a distributed workforce and, and handling things remote. And an interesting thing that introduces is a bit of a tangent, but I think it's important is that any industry that can operate effectively with a remote workforce now imposes that organizational model on its competitors because all of a sudden they can pull like pluck right out office and rent, right? Real estate cost, right? All of the, all of the costs associated with maintaining the office, which are usually very substantial, substantial portion of a company's overhead is office, rent, maintenance, et cetera. If you can pull that out of their cost structure, then all of a sudden they've picked up a lot of margin. They can lower their prices. They can be much more competitive such that they impose via the price signal on their competitors to adopt a similar cost cutting strategy. Right. Um, so I think you'll see industries that that are that do well with this model really like just accelerate. They just which is going to create interesting effects on on commercial real estate. Um, so yeah, that's just that's just an interesting dynamic I think we're seeing play out. Um, and you know, clearly all of this has been an accelerant to the digital age. Um, but yeah, schooling people in for a very particular purpose, right? Where you're just trying to beat these. Um, and some of the things we learn in school, by the way, like I uh, saw one of my friend's kids studying for a test. This is a couple of years ago. But 
just the rote memorization of state capitals. It's like, who, why, why, why would you ever waste your time doing that? Waste your time. There you go. Zero, like it's, it's negative value. If anything, you're just training yourself to, unless you're going to be a, a memory competition guy, then there's no value to that. So <laughs> no. education's brutal. No. I agree. Yeah, it's interesting um, to, to hear your take. Um, yeah, you just touched on something else there that, um, yeah, you, you, talking about, um, you know, putting the onus on all of their, you know, if a company's going remote, putting the onus on all of the other companies to to go that way. Um, makes me think of um, MicroStrategy and mm. the, the other announcement that just dropped by Michael Saylor, which, um, yeah. you know, it's... How many how many Bitcoin now? Thirty two and a half thousand, I think we're up to, or something close to that. Thirty eight thousand two fifty, I believe, is the number. Yeah, right. thirty eight thousand two fifty Bitcoin, which is zero point one nine percent of the total supply, assuming a total supply of twenty million, which we know it's much less than that. Um, right. So and I, I I tweeted this out earlier, but just to give you an idea, so they're a they're a NASDAQ listed business intelligence firm, one of the 41,000 listed companies globally. Collectively, those 41,000 companies have $80 trillion in balance sheet. And of the 41,000, only 522 could ever execute a similar strategy to Mr. Saylor's micro strategy based on Bitcoin supply constraints. So if every company in the world right now is saying, hey, let's go out and buy 38,250 Bitcoin, only 522 of the 41,000 listed companies could do so. Um, and that's based, again, based just on Bitcoin supply constraints. That's not saying that once there was this race to acquire Bitcoin, the market cap would go through the roof and would start to price a lot of them out. But the... The point I'm making here is that the, the game theory that we've talked about for years is it is indeed permeating at a higher and higher level. Um, we're now at the, the mega corp level and the next domino to fall is central bank and nation state. Once a central bank, once it's expressly known that a central bank is holding Bitcoin on its balance sheet, you're going to see this race go to a whole new level. Um, and, and, Michael Saylor's leading the charge on the megacorp front. And, um, you know, frankly, I'm happy to have a guy of his caliber helping lead the hard money renaissance. And putting onus on these other companies to do the same now. This, you know, every single CEO worth their salt is going to be watching this very, very closely. And how many companies do you think we're going to see post Q3 do the same thing, announce this? You're absolutely right. Um, their stock price is going to explode over the next 24 months, just as a result of that that balance sheet position. Uh, the the move actually de-risk holding Bitcoin for other corporate treasuries of you know an equal or smaller size worldwide, because you know the herd moves like a herd. Well, Mr. Saylor did it. You know, we're, our enterprise value is half of MicroStrategies. Why can't we do it? These are the discussions being had in boardrooms right now. Um, similar to the way Paul Tudor Jones 
move into Bitcoin, de-risked, like remove the career risk from holding Bitcoin for hedge fund guys, right? This this move does that for corporate treasuries. Um, it's amazing. It's amazing to see these things happen that you've been beating, you know, everyone in Bitcoin has been beating this drum for a long time. They're like, just wait. Like, it, it happens at an individual level, but the the knowledge of what Bitcoin is you, it can't be stopped, right? It is back to that concept of truth, the ultimate form of truth mankind has ever invented. It's the only form of indisputable global consensus the world has ever had. You, like if you're trying to fight that, you're 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 deluding yourself, right? There's a lot like if you just consider truth to be an accurate portrayal of reality, and you're trying to go against reality, there's a whole lot of reality, and there's not much of you. So I think people kind of wise up to this over time and say, I have to have a position on this network. Even if, if nothing else, I could be the biggest dissident to Bitcoin in the world, a central bank, for instance, if nothing else, then to ensure myself against its potential success. Because if Bitcoin is successful in the way that we contemplate it, it is an extinction level event for central banking. So if a central bank quantifies that to be even a 0.1% chance of happening, their fiduciarily responsible tactic is to hold 0.1% of their assets in Bitcoin. That game theory plays out at every level, the individual, the corp, and the nation state. So I, I'm amazed how fast things have happened, frankly. I just, it is such an amazing time to be alive. I know it seems dark and awful and terrible, and it is in a lot of ways, but so much potential and possibility in front of us. Um, and yeah, it just, yeah, starts, starts here, starts with educational platforms like this that are getting to the truth and breaking through the, the propaganda. Oh man, I'm glad to hear you say that because I do worry <laughs> that like, you know, you having seen through so much of this shit and sharing it and, you know, like, you know, I'm thinking, fuck, like, you know, you said it's like living in the Truman show. You can be a lonely place. It can yeah. be a dark place, can be a depressing place, but um, yeah, really happy to hear you say this is this is setting you alight at the same time and, and giving you hope. Um, and don't be don't be modest. I, I know Michael Saylor reached out to you. Um, what what did he say? Oh, he just sent me a message showing uh, showing his purchase, and he messaged me again today about the latest one. And uh, he just yeah said he appreciated my work, said it was brilliant, and um. Uh, yeah, I was honored. Frankly, I, you know, the first purchase was 250 million, and that, so that day he contacted me, and then VJ, who's another major Bitcoin influencer, he wrote um, "Bullish Case for Bitcoin," which is an amazing read for anyone out there that hasn't read it. He made me his. This was whatever two months ago. He he, uh, he follows one guy every month or week to uh, to help spread their awareness. So that happened the same day. It was. Sailor and VJ. So it's like, I was just, I was lit up that day. I was like, all right, this thing's really happening. <laughs> well done, man. Uh, that, that must be just so amazing to realize that, you know, all of the, the hard work and effort that you put into writing these, these um, articles uh, is being read at the highest level and starting discussions in boardrooms at the highest level and possibly 
governments, man. Like, you know, this is, imagine that, right? That is, yeah. that's crazy. Yeah. I, yeah. It'd be interesting to hear from them. I don't think governments are going to like what I've written. <laughs> <laughs> Talking of writing the book, come on, give us an insight. What's going on? What, what's the, um, is the plan just to pull all of your pieces together and do a Knut Svonholm type thing and like uh, throw a little bit of salt no. and pepper on it? No, or no. Are you starting from it's, a blank canvas? So it's well, a couple of things. I've taken a lot of notes, um, so I've already pulled together like probably six hundred pages of notes. But it's a mess, right? Like when I take notes, it's literally I'm just typing fast, bad, and wrong. A lot of it's in my phone because I get a lot of ideas when I'm exercising. Um, so. That's been compiled. We've put it into a framework. We have kind of a table of contents. I've got a, a guy helping me with this as well. So um, it's in a table of content framework that we've established uh, a tentative narrative arc for what it should look like. Um, and now in the editing slash writing phase, like I actually have to go back and rewrite a lot of these notes and weave them together so they make sense. But I think I'm not putting a, a, a timeline on myself at this point. I, I set the general expectation for end of 2021. Um, but I'll try and sort of give you that general arc a little bit. Um, it's a very ambitious book. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I, want I would to never explain. thought. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to explain space and time from first principles. So, like, really starting and I'm really trying to get at the the first principles of physics, right? To get a good basis, and then explain how evolution works basically right so so life is constantly trying to change its relationship with space and time through evolution um so you kind of get into evolution biology and then when you get to higher organisms like ourselves that translates directly into economics and game theory because innovation and trade is just us trying to change our relationship with space and time through tools so it's kind of like the the inorganic version of innovation, right? Or of evolution, sorry. So evolution and innovation are very closely linked. You could actually consider evolution to be a biological innovation. And then, so explain trading society, explain money, the nature of money from first principles. Um, and then just walk through that history, like why gold was selected, how it was, that how it failed, basically how gold failed, um, because gold did fail. Gold is the best monetary technology we've ever had, but it its physicality uh, caused it to have it caused it to incentivize groups to violence over it. Right, you can go to war and fight over gold and steal it and confiscate it and all these things. So then get into Bitcoin, um, and then get into maybe what the world looks like on a more Bitcoin type standard. You know, all these things we're talking about today, where how much wealth creation is possible. What do people do when all of a sudden you don't need to work 40 hours to support your family? You need to work four 
what does that look like? What do you do? Um, so that's it. Uh, <laughs> you know, short and sweet. Um, <laughs> it's, and I haven't actually talked about this much, but there's this, there's this concept in biology called the territorial imperative. And I'm still reading a lot about it, but let's just say, suffice to say that territory is a very important thing to all organisms. They do crazy shit to defend their territory, to mark their territory, et cetera, et cetera. And my hypothesis right now is that property rights are just an extension of mankind's territorial imperative because property rights are just a right to something we changed and created in nature, right? And the highest of those property rights is money because money can be used to acquire any other property in the marketplace. So money, that's what I'm trying to root it back to space and time. Like money is, I've said it before that money is time implementized, but Einstein taught us that space and time are the same thing. So I think that money might actually be space time implementized. So it's a direct reflection of, of territory and property rights. Um, so yeah, that was a nice nerdy tangent, but that's that'll be a short chapter. Jesus, hopefully people just come to see. Uh, hopefully it will demystify money, and then you can start to see why people are so crazy about money. It's like because it's mm-hmm. biological. Like the same reason a bee will sting the shit out of you if you go mess with his hive is why people get really mad if you mess with their money. Mm-hmm. It's it's a territorial imperative. It makes sense, man. I know exactly what you're saying. Um, the biological um, kind of connection there. That that's yeah. That, never. Who would have ever thought of that before? <laughs> like you know, that's it. There you go. You're yeah. onto something. Yeah. Spend enough um, time thinking about Bitcoin, and you're going to think of a lot of things. <laughs> yeah, you certainly are. Uh, so. What is come into the year? Where do you think? Where do you think we're looking? Bitcoin price wise, are you on this kind of crazy S two F rocket model type scenario, or a slow plod? You don't care. It's going to do what it does. What you know? Um, I mean, I guess. If, let's ask you a job about Parallax. What what is it at Parallax that you know you're advising people, and um, because they must be, the, the questions just must keep coming in now. Yeah, I mean, people reach out to me every day from all over the world through all of these things: the podcast, the the writing, um, just the Parallax website. Um, so we're. I think this go around or this market cycle, like Bitcoin is definitely considered real. No one intelligent is calling Bitcoin a Ponzi scheme anymore. Like you just get laughed out of the room, frankly, where the opposite was true four years ago. If you said Mm -hmm. Bitcoin wasn't a Ponzi scheme to a lot of, a lot of these high net worth uh, investor level guys, um, they would not take you seriously. So the perception has definitely shifted a lot. Uh, we put out some internal price guidance. Uh, I tweeted, this was in December of last year, that I thought Bitcoin would be at 14K by the halving. 
which was a little ambitious, largely I would say due to the COVID meltdown. Um, 20K by December 2020, which we're possibly on track for. Um, And then the next market peak, which would occur sometime between late 2021 and 2023, we marked at 240K. And this was before Plan B's new model that put it at 288. Um, this was just based on a number, all of, it's based on wallets, basically a composite formula of wallets, hash rate, market cap growth, user growth, um, and just kind of plotting them out on a percentage basis, saying if the last cycle looked similar to this cycle, uh, and then watering it down a bit kind of for the law of large numbers because each cycle becomes more elongated and slightly compressed in terms of magnitude. And I, I stand by that. Um, you know, it's not financial advice and all the, the legalese, but um, central banks are definitely supporting the value proposition of Bitcoin with guns a-blazing, so to speak. So um, it's going to be a big one. I think this market cycle is going to be this decade, I will say, will be defining for Bitcoin. I think by the Mm -hmm. end of the decade, I don't see how Bitcoin is not one of the main topics of conversation always. Right. Like gold is being disrupted. Right. That that realization will be very deeply integrated into people's psyches by the end of the decade. And then all of the game theory associated with that transition will start to manifest itself. So um, I'm just glad we have a front row seat for it. (laughs) Yeah, precisely. And, you know, these I I like asking uh, people like yourself um, about the price predictions because you're not just wetting your finger and sticking it in the air, right? You guys... You go deep into analysis and you look at all, a whole bunch of different things. Uh, and it's not just like this wishy-washy kind of guess answer. Um, and, but it still just blows me away every time. It's just yeah. absolutely. Our, our internal guidance, we handicap that number, you know, because we, we like to under-promise and over-deliver. But that was the actual, 240K was the actual number that our model generated. I think it was 242, so... And for those people that want to find more out about Parallax, who are the kind of um, customers that um, should potentially uh, get in touch with you and where can they find you, mate? Well, anyone can reach out to me. Our our website, we have a number of of channels, whether you're uh, looking to talk to us about a project, you want to talk to me about Bitcoin. I have a lot of people reaching out to me just wanting to converse about my writing or or maybe suggest... uh, if there was a typo or anything, which I appreciate that. (laughs) Um, And I get a lot of messages, you know, my writing is, I guess, kind of known for having a philosophical bent slightly. So people have really sent me some interesting messages about other philosophical concepts. And I enjoy that. I try to respond to everything. Um, It's a bit, it's a lot sometimes though. I get a lot of messages from a lot of different channels. So, Apologies if I haven't responded to you. Um, and then, yeah, on the fun side, we're, you know, we're targeting high net worth individuals, family offices, institutions. Um, and, you know, you can find me on Twitter. My username is my last name, 
at breedlove22, B-R-E-E-D-L-O-V-E-2-2. And then our website is parallaxdigital.io, P-A-R-A-L-L-A-X, digital.io. Perfect. And all my writings, not- all my writings on Medium. So. We are not going to leave it there, but I just wanted to make sure you got the shill in for Parallax and okay. <laughs> uh, that people could come and find you. I appreciate because, that. Because <laughs> uh, no, no problem at all. I mean, you're running a business. You're trying to provide a service. Um, it would be uh, remiss of me to you know, not use this platform to make sure you can reach the people you're trying to serve. Um, yeah. I wanted to ask you something that came up in the, the John Vallis um, book club that he's doing, and they reviewed your article with Guy and a few other okay. people. Um and you'd sent some questions across to the uh, to the guys and had them kind of like thinking about it. And I wanted to turn a question back onto you. And sorry if it's not the exact same question, but basically I think what you were getting at is if Bitcoin is going to, you know, usurp this um, legacy finance system that we are um, currently uh, going through um, and have been, um, you know, uh, subjected to, is there, I mean, that's going to cause a lot of up in the air randomness and a lot of pain for some people. Is there some kind of malicious side to to Bitcoin? I think that's the kind of question that, that you put to them. Um, you can phrase it in your own words if, if you prefer. Um, so the question that I recall posing to them was that in, in the beginning of the piece, I talk about agri-beads which are a form of money used in Western Africa for centuries. And then in 16th century, uh, Europeans landed. These are basically small glass beads. When Europeans landed, realized agribeads are being used as money. They realized that they could produce these beads much more cheaply back home and ship in the glass beads and use it to use the counterfeit agribeads to confiscate their wealth, essentially. So, my argument was that that was a usurpation or theft or confiscation of African wealth through a, a counterfeit money. And a lot of counter arguments to that were, well, actually, Europeans just technologically disrupted African agribeads, right? It would be as if someone was using silver and we came in and used gold. Gold was a harder, harder monetary tech, so we disrupted them. And that's a great point because that is exactly what happened. However those counterfeit agribeads became instrumental in the transatlantic slave trade. And they were even, indeed they're even known as slave beads. So my, my question was like, where do we draw the line, right? Between technological disruption and immorality. And I don't have a clear answer on that, frankly. Um, the, you know, again, I, I go, I go back to that Rothbard quote a lot, which is to be moral and act must be free. So I think the line is stepped over as soon as you're, you know, forcing someone under threat of violence or coercion to do something. I think that's when you're actually stepping over that line. But who knows where that actually happened in that that 365 year episode? Um, but it's it's really, it's, it's interesting to think about because again, you're back to that connection between the monetary and monetary standard and morality. Um, and you know, I would say fortunately there it's, it's again, Bitcoin stands out and that if it is 
what we think it is. It's kind of this final evolution in base money such that you would never face those situations again. There would never need to be, uh, there would never be a monetary disruption to Bitcoin. So there would never be this, um, this thought experiment of trying to figure out where the, the line between disruption and morality is crossed. Um, and then, you know, two that, that again, one thing that's not talked about enough with Bitcoin is that it's resistant to seizure and confiscation. And when you start to look at a lot of human history as centered around, uh, you know, battle and warfare, which a lot, a lot of which would be to preserve the territorial imperative, money tends to be the first thing they go for, right? Like when Nazi Germany would invade a country, they go straight to its central bank and hoard it, hoard its gold. That's indeed why a lot of gold ended up in North America because you had the Blitzkrieg storming Europe, right? Confiscating gold left and right. A lot of gold started leaving Europe uh, to be stored in North America as a geographic safe haven from Nazi plundering. And that, and then U.S. steps in at the end of the war, kicks everyone's ass, rewrites the rules, declaring ourselves king because we hold the most gold, right? Like that's the game that's been playing out. So the fact that you could now go and invade a country. If the, if the country's holding Bitcoin, assuming they custodied it properly, right, with the, the right proper proper protocols, you can't confiscate it. Nazi Germany couldn't go in and, and steal, you know, Poland's Bitcoin or whatever. So that really changes the geopolitical landscape in ways we can't even comprehend. It's like all of a sudden the incentives to violence are dramatically reduced. Um, and that's just that's just related to Bitcoin. Um Distributed cryptographic software changes the the mega political structure of violence in a lot of ways. And in, on that topic, I always point people to the book, The Sovereign Individual. Um, uh, th- did I answer the original question? I walked off on a yeah, I, no, I, my my question was a bit wishy washy, but um, I was trying to, you know, do, do you feel that, you know. There's a malicious side to this. So if you use the agribeads, the agribeads are going in with, you know, a malicious intent to um, basically debase the currency and, um, mm-hmm. you know, get get a lot of value from people for free, steal their time, and yeah. um, in the yeah. end, you know, enslave them. Um, is this... <laughs> is there a parallel here to I Bitcoin? Get, like, you know, as early adopters, I we guess. think, that, like... Is there going to be if you, if this plays out in like ten years' time? There's going to there's still going to be those people that did not buy and have yet to buy. Um, you know what kind of a world does that look like to you? And there's going to be people like, well, this wrecked the fiat system. You fuckers. Mm-hmm. You know, wow. um, I've been just yeah, been thinking I, about that a bit. Like, I agree. <clears throat> uh, transitions are never clean right they're never just like phase out one thing phase in another there are, there's always a lot of chaos involved um and i guess that yeah it's, you know bitcoin is a major first principles technological disruption to even our conception of money so there could be and if it happens too fast as i've argued before it could actually increase wealth disparity like if hyper bitcoinization happened right now you know bitcoin's in very few hands so it would actually probably create a world that was uh, more unevenly distributed in terms of wealth. 
So that's a real threat. Um, but I think the main takeaway is that you can't falsify Bitcoin. I mean, maybe you can a, a little bit at the margins, but those those operations don't hold up, right? In a world of, of cryptographic certainty that you can settle with finality in an hour, um, as people become more aware of the power of this technology, no one's going to accept Bitcoin IOUs, right? So fractional reserve banking, um, rehypothecation. I think all these things just collapse as, as remnants of fiat currency legacy. Um, which means that you couldn't wield Bitcoin immorally, right? You couldn't deceive people into using a false Bitcoin or things like that. In theory, like clearly in the middle of all this transition, all kinds of weird games are going to be played. Uh, we've already seen, you know, how many exchanges get knocked off, how many exchanges running fractional reserves, how many lending businesses rehypothecating collateral. Like it's rife with chaos, as I said, in the interim. But the distant promise of Bitcoin is that those games will no longer be playable. You will not be able to run a Bitcoin fractional reserve. You will not be able to inflate or artificially inflate the supply of Bitcoin to benefit yourself at the expense of others. You will not be able to confiscate Bitcoin. Um, and all these things just change, totally change the nature of the relationship between man and money. Um, so yeah, Bitcoin, it really is, as I go into, into in the piece, like it is, it's truth in a lot of ways, right? We consider that markets generate three forms of truth, which are accurate prices, right? So everyone's constantly inquiring through trade about the value of everything else. Everything trades at a ratio of everything else. Those ratios are denominated in money in prices. So a price is an exchange ratio denominated in money, right? That's a form of truth that markets generate. Tools, everyone inquiring constantly about how best to satisfy a want, right? How do I dig a hole best and fastest? The, the shovel structure that we have, like the length of the shaft, the shape of the handle, the shape of the head, where the screws are placed, all of that knowledge structure on which the shovel is based is our sharpest present solution to solving the want of digging holes. So the tool itself is a form of truth, right? And then competitive competence and individual virtue, right? Like you, you are incentivized as an entrepreneur to be accountable to the preferences of your customers, to care about their feedback, to listen to what they say. Otherwise they take their business elsewhere. So that too, I think is a form of truth. And I really think that Bitcoin it embodies those three forms of truth in a very interesting way because it it's the purest, it enables purity in price signals, right? We have this ruler of value that can't be compromised. It's one of the greatest tools we've ever invented. It may even be the greatest tool that capitalism has ever produced. And then the real interesting one is that through interacting with Bitcoin, people are actually improved. I would argue improving their virtuosity and their morality, right? They're lowering their time preference. They're becoming more family oriented. They're becoming more globally conscious. They're becoming more environmentally conscious. Um, it's just amazing. It's like this thing really is a potent dose of the truth. Yeah. Excellent, man. Last question. Uh, 
and I, I tweeted this out to you the other day because this is um, a big realization I come to when, um, you know, like I said, since reading it, um, it's just been on my mind the whole time, 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 time. <laughs> and uh, we, we, we look at Bitcoin and we try and explain Bitcoin to people in different ways. You know, it's a store of value. It's a savings technology. Um, it's, uh, you know, whatever it is that you've, you've tried to tell people. Um, for me, like it just suddenly kind of clicked, you know, it was a time reclamation technology. Mm. Um, and, you know, you've already kind of touched on this by saying, you know, what would the world look like in 10 years if we were on a Bitcoin standard or something very close to it a lot further down the line than we are now? Have you, how much thought have you given to that? And, um, uh, honestly, not, that's, as I mentioned, part of the book, I want to get into that, but that's being towards the end is the part I've thought about least actually. Um, but I do, I, I think that angle actually can resonate with people and that people understand constraints on their time, demands on their time, how everything in the world is moving faster, more productive, yet life still seems to have less time somehow, right? It's like we're more productive than ever, but we're you now have to have two people in your household working full time to pay for the household versus one, you know, 50, 40, 50 years ago. So I think people uh, relate to that pressure quite well. And if you can get people to, or if you can help people think of money in that way, it gives you this natural uh, segue to Bitcoin, right? Because we have this, clearly your time is absolutely scarce. No one can change the supply of your time. So the tool that you use to reflect and trade the fruits of your labor should be something equally as scarce. And in Bitcoin, we have the first money in history that exhibits perfect fidelity to the absolute scarcity of time. Um, I think people get that, you know, that, that strikes a chord. And when you come to see it that way, um, it really becomes much, you know, money is a tool for freedom, but when you have a money that absolutely cannot be compromised, cannot be confiscated, cannot be manipulated, you now have the greatest tool for freedom humanity has ever had. Um, and that's why, you know, I, th I finished the piece. Um, I call Bitcoin a weapon of peace. It's actually the assassination of time theft. And that's just one of the ways I like to think about it is that we have this Money that's intended to be our network of trust has theft integrated at its core. And now we have this form of money that is purely honest. And, uh, you know, it is. If truth is the the end of inquiry, like Bitcoin is open to all inquiry, right? It is it is the truth We're really out competing this central bank system that's just shrouded in darkness and in a lot of ways. Um, so what does the world look like? I just think we're more, much 
the, the, the broad stroke I would give is say we're much wealthier. We will be much, much wealthier to the point where wealth will probably be much less of a concern overall. Like you will talk and think about money less in your daily life in this world because your basic needs will be much more cheaply met. Um, every regulation that's unnecessary that comes down increases aggregate wealth creation, right? Because just think about like, think about even the word economy just means to accomplish greater results in the same or less time, right? To economize your movement or thought or action is to just do more in less time. That's what an economy is. And every time, and we accomplish that through trade, right? So like I do what I do best, you do what you do best, we trade, we create more output in aggregate. Every time you introduce frictions to those trade flows, which are regulations, tariffs, fiat currency itself is one giant friction, right? Uh, and the funding source of all these other regulations, when you start to pull that out, trade flows become accelerated, innovation becomes accelerated, wealth creation just booms. Um, that's the great promise of Bitcoin. Is it really allowing us to, to capitalize on the greatest tool for freedom we've ever had and remove the roadblocks uh, to wealth confiscation, or remove the roadblocks to wealth creation by eliminating wealth confiscation? So well put. And uh, yeah, um, I'll keep giving it more and more thought uh, because you know it's just playing on my mind so much. Um, hmm. I don't, I don't remember how you you responded to this question the first time I asked you. But if you had one red pill left, who would you give it to, and why? I responded last time with Jordan Peterson and Joe Rogan. Jordan That's correct. Peterson, yeah, yeah, Jordan Peterson because. Which, I mean, if you don't have any introduction to him, just start with his YouTube lecture. I know most people prefer video. I would say read his book, but his book is extremely hard, Maps of Meaning. But it's a, it's a wonderful book. He has an easier one titled 12 Rules for Life. But if you need an introduction to Jordan Peterson, just go check out his YouTube lecture series called The Psychological Significance of the Bible. And it's not, it's very secular. It's not religious in the slightest, even though he's talking about the Bible. Um, and he'll, he'll blow your mind. And I think that's a 12 or 15 part lecture series. And then he has a whole treasure trove of lectures beyond that. Um, you'll know pretty quickly if you like him or not, but he's a super engaging speaker. And um, he really is touching on the, the, the deepest levels of, uh, of our understanding across a number of domains. So I think, and he has, he's created this following of, you know, just really smart people from all over the world. And I think if I had to orange pill somebody, he's already there. He's already talking about uh, the fact that individual sovereignty, we have to maximize that. That's what religion teaches. That's what capitalism teaches. That's how we create wealth. Like that, that's all you need right there. The, if you could just see that Bitcoin. Oh, and he's all, also talking about speaking the truth, right? Like to not, he says, tell the truth or at least don't lie. Like you're always, again, talk about having reality on your side. You should 
all you should always want the you know the wind at your back so to speak you want the winds of reality at your back so that's why you tell the truth because if you deceive and you tell a lie reality is going to snap back against you somehow no one gets away with anything so and, and the, which he analogizes not analogizes he says that those are the two teachings main teachings of Christ right to tell the truth and to honor the sovereignty of the individual right to love your neighbor to respect them all these things and those are the two qualities Bitcoin maximizes. It maximizes truthfulness in the language of value, and it maximizes the sovereignty of individual holders. So I think if we could get Jordan Peterson Orangefield, he has holds sway and has influence over the right remnant of people that would that would have the best second order effects, right? All the other, many of the other smartest people in the world believe in Jordan Peterson. So if we could get him over the line, I think that would be the biggest win for Bitcoin. And I said Joe Rogan secondarily because me, I know Joe Rogan has more reach. So I'm not, it's kind of like quality versus quantity. I think the right people follow Jordan Peterson very closely, very high quality uh, intellectual types that would sway a lot of other people. But I know Joe Rogan has the quantity for sure. You know, he's got a billion downloads a year or something like that. So he's, he is quite possibly the most powerful interviewer of all time uh, as an early adopter and embracer of this new technological medium. So let's just cut that orange pill in half and give, give half to you. You only need, you only need a little bit. You don't even need the whole thing. That's right. Well, like what, you know, to your point, what you said about Jordan Peterson, it sounds like he needs a crumb like, you know, what, why, yes. why do people, I come up against this a lot, you know, it's like you, you have conversations with people and they're, what they're saying is like, and then you get to the end of the conversation, you're like, you're so primed for Bitcoin. I don't understand what, why, why is that barrier? And it's usually the comeback I get, oh, I'm no good at investments. I don't understand about finance and, mm. you know, there's the stock markets and all that. Just like they've got, they've, and this comes back to education as well, right? Like zero education That's on right anything to do with finance. And that's why people are yeah. uh, in, in such crippling debt. Um, yeah. Because, you know, the narrative is get, go get yourself a job, get yourself minimum wage, whatever it is, a little bit higher. Um, then once you've got that, save up a little bit. And then once you've got that little bit, you take that to the bank and they'll give you a shit ton and yeah. then you're trapped for the rest of your life. That's right. It's it's a disgusting system. Yeah, really <laughs> like it. Uh, the other thing is Jordan Peterson is he's such a polymath, but the one area that I think he hasn't dug deep on is economics. Actually, when you hear him talk about economics, he did one project at the UN. So he read a lot of mainstream economics for a couple of years. And I think that was the extent of his economics exploration. I would love to hear him read some Austrian econ and get his feedback on it. Cause I think it, it, fits very nicely into his existing worldview about the nature of facts versus values, how values you can't derive an ought from an is, right? So there's an, there's an objective domain that's explicated through science and there's a subjective domain that's ex explicated through uh, a lot of religion, morality, and Austrian economics. Praxeology explores that domain where you can't quantify human action, but you can, uh, build upon it from first principles, right? Like one of the axioms being man must act like you can't not act in the world. That's all, that's all to, 
you can't not take action to even be inactive is to take an action. Right. So I think those would play really well with, with his, like I said, his existing worldview um, and his understanding of, of economics and Bitcoin. Yeah. To go chill out, lay on the sofa and watch Netflix is, uh, is taking action, right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. You, you man must act. So if, so if we can't, Orange Pill Joe Rogan, would you put yourself forward to go on a show and uh, be interviewed by him? Jordan Peterson? Joe Rogan. Oh, Joe Rogan. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. of course. Yeah. yeah, that would be a dream come true. Um, I actually think to be on Jordan Peterson, to talk to Jordan Peterson about Bitcoin would probably be one of my highest uh, aims, you know, for all the reasons we've, we've laid out here. But there is no question <laughs> that Joe Rogan... Uh, has an incredible reach. And another thing I actually listened to, this was Jordan Peterson interviewing Joe Rogan. He did a two part series and Joe Rogan had an interesting upbringing. Um, he was like, he had an interesting childhood. And so anyways, I, I, there were a lot of parallels between us. So yeah, I would love to, uh, go talk to Joe. And then apparently there was a lot of stuff about this on Twitter recently. And everyone's like, yeah, Joe needs, Joe needs a, a meathead to go in there and like really tell him how it is. And I'm like, I'm happy to be that guy. If that's what it takes, is a buff Bitcoiner talking about it. I'll, I'll do extra pushups that morning and go talk about it. <laughs> All right. Last question. Can you lift the lid for any of us that couldn't make it to bit block boom? Is there, um, what went down? Is there any, uh, how did it all go? Um, any, any fun stories you can, uh, you can share with, with us that were just kind of like locked away watching Bitcoin Twitter, like thinking, fuck, we wish we were in Dallas, but couldn't make it. <laughs> yeah. Um, Gary did a great job. Bitblock Boom was a blast. Um, it's the first social thing I've done since COVID. Um, it was just great to connect with a lot of Bitcoiners. I'm always reminded of, I become more bullish on the space when I meet the people that understand it because they're really super intelligent people from all walks of life. So it's not like it feels a lot less cultish than maybe the outside uh, people perceive about Bitcoin. I mean, it's truly is people from, from all over the world, all walks of life. And um, lots of good talks were given. Uh, I, I guess the general, the story was just, the hotel kept sweating us on the mask, right? And clearly everyone in Bitcoin is super libertarian. So it was just this constant back and forth of uh, put your mask on, take your mask off. But it turns out the trick to not having to wear a mask was you just had to buy a drink at the bar. So as long as you had a drink in your hand, you didn't have to have a mask. So I don't know if it was actually they were concerned for our safety or they were just trying to increase their, their alcohol sales. But it's funny. Uh, and the, one of the, the funniest tweets that I saw from the whole weekend came from um, Al's Lacrosse, and I don't I don't know whether you saw it. You were definitely tagged in on it. Um, do, do you know that you're smiling? Do you know the one I'm talking about? Is this about? the Karate Kid thing? <laughs> yeah, that was funny. I'd never seen. Turns out I look like Karate Kid. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, I think it's the, it's the bad dude in Karate Kid Two. I think. Or maybe Karate Kid Three. I don't know. It's one of the follow-up ones. But um, oh, it was a bad guy. 
there's the bad guy. Oh, that has I thought the, it was uh, the Karate Kid. So I'm the bad guy. No, 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 no. <laughs> you're you're the bad guy <laughs> because the tweet was. And now when you, you got to go watch the film now, I'll find out whether it's two or three. I can't remember, but um, I just started pissing myself. Uh, it it yeah. was like uh, I, I love me, I love me some breed love. He talks nothing but sense, but I don't understand why he had to be such a dick to the Karate Kid. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he get. Uh, Al, Al gave a great award show at the end of Bitblock Boom as well. It was super funny. Um, oh, really? They were, they were showing oh, he a lot was of doing the, the face swaps where they make, um, you know, guys look like girls and vice versa. Right. It was just, it was really funny. Wasn't he doing some kind of um, Bitcoin podcast award show or something? Some kind of uh, Oscars or was it just a, a kind of? Well, yeah, of, that was, um, it was like a, it was like a mock Oscars, I guess, at the end of Bitblock Boom. And then he was awarding people for the... For, I don't know if it's on YouTube or not, but I would say just go watch it. If you're in the Bitcoin universe, it's really funny. He's, he did, did a really good job. Yeah, they've, they've started dropping some things now on the YouTube. So uh, I'm going to go check out what's, um, what's up there and uh, live vicariously through uh, the YouTube channel of Bitblock Boom, which was already weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, Robert, thanks for your time, man. Um, really, really appreciate you coming back on again and discussing all of this. You are working on another piece. Do you have any dangled carrots as to when you might drop that? Um, I, I don't know on the timing. I've been trying to hit like one per quarter here. So that would be by the end of October, I guess, but we'll see. And I'm just exploring ideas, trying to see how ideas are generated. What are the, you know, how do we assess their quality? What are the best ideas we've ever had? How does it all, how's it all related to Bitcoin, of course? Of course, man. Well, look forward to it. And uh, I'm sure everybody else listening is as well. Thank you again, mate. Thanks, Dan. Hey guys, thanks for listening and thank you again to Robert for taking the time to come on and discuss this piece of writing and all the other things that we discussed. Um, really enjoy having Robert on and um, you know picking his brain and seeing where it takes him. You know, clearly one of the um, thought leaders in the space. Uh, I'm sure you'd be uh, blushing to hear that, but uh, you know the, the 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 quality of writing that he's putting out is just uh, incredible and the, the thought process and how deep he goes in everything that he does is um you know it's nothing but inspirational to be honest I, I i completely look up to the guy for the length he goes to 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 help educate others you know i, I can't imagine how much um well we already know like as was discussed people such as michael saylor are reading his work and that is aiding decisions at the very top of companies to to invest in um, into Bitcoin and, and you know move move us into the next phase of of Bitcoinization, whatever you want to call it. Uh, you know, it's um, you, you always think like, what's going like people in a hundred to two hundred years time when when they're studying this point in history when we have this, you know, when, when it becomes evident 
to them. It's like, well, of course that was going to happen. Like, you know, how could that crumbling system have ever, ever held out as long as it did? There was going to be something else. I mean, all of a sudden, they had computers like it. You know, it was just inevitable. Um, and they're going to be able to study uh, podcast episodes like this and just sit down and listen uh, and listen to these minds speak. They're going to be able to listen. You know, they can read Safe's book, Rob's work, Parker's work, or and then go and back that up with direct interviews, you know, and hundreds of them. Um, it's just uh, it blows my mind that um, you know we're we're at this turning point in history and. So few of us seem to understand or are willing to go as deep as Robert and some of the others do to, to educate us around it. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it is brilliant. Uh, really very, very humbled to, to sit in front of these guys and ask them questions and, and get their thoughts. And, you know, since I read um, this piece and, and listened to Guy um, on his Bitcoin Audible podcast, this, this theft of time just keeps keeps coming back and gnawing at me and it's like my god like you know down to everything we do you know check it out now like you know you know whatever you're doing during your day to day where's the theft of time taking place and how can you cut that out and be you know and cut it out like viciously like you know if you can trim that in whatever way like you know so much time is going to be saved now you know thanks covid for um, the remote work uh, option that you can now pull that card out whenever you want and say, you know, even if you have this ungrateful boss that says, right, no, remote work's over, everybody back in the office, you can legitimately turn around and say, no way, pal. I do not want to do that. I have no interest in being on packed trains, packed buses, packed buildings. Um, You know, it doesn't matter what you think of COVID. It's like you, you can pull that card and take back your time and like just that three hour commute that you had to do in the past that becomes your time again because it's your time you can't get that back uh, and all of the uh, you know bureaucracy and administrative work and stuff that has to be done how can we get how can we claim that time back how can we cut through that complete nightmare um, you know I have optimism uh, I have hope for the future that uh, you know everything will slowly follow in the uh, in the wake of of bitcoin and uh yeah we, we we will be able to you know claim back that time rebuild uh relationships start families you know wherever you are whatever age you are and whatever point you are in your in your life um it's a bright orange future uh so you know that's why we're here that's why i'm doing this podcast and speaking to people like robert so hope you guys are getting some value from it um Reach out to Robert, go follow him, DM him, like, tweet, share this uh, this episode, whatever it is you do. Really appreciate anything that, uh, that you do there uh, and, and all the interaction. Um, before I go, uh, last shout out for uh, the boys over at 21ism. Go and check them out. They're doing some incredible stuff. Uh, the guys across the pond, Swan Bitcoin, building an amazing Bitcoin-only company. Love all the guys they have on the team. They just keep getting better and better. That's Swan Bitcoin dot com forward slash breedlove use rob's use rob's um code and uh you know give him uh, a little bit of um love uh if you want to um support uh rob in any way uh, i think you can uh, head over and support his um his book he didn't shill that um 
Yeah, I think you can even um, head over to uh, a website and help fund his book. Um, I will find that link and check with him because I'm sure that you're able to do that. Um, and if I can find that, I'll put that in the show notes. And um, big thanks to Obi and the CoinFloor guys um, for uh, for supporting the show. CoinFloor.co.uk forward slash bitten. Uh, go start stacking sats. And uh, I'll see you guys on the next show. Thanks, Adam, for putting this all together. Another amazing job. Really appreciate everything you do. And uh, pleasure to work with you. Um, let's go. Let's go, Bitcoin Twitter. Let's do this. I'll catch you later. Bye, guys.